0: I've entitled today's sermon, The Threshing Floor Incident. The truth is, I was at a loss as to what else to call the thing. So I thought, the more vague and mysterious, the better, The Threshing Floor Incident. Uh, Beloved, this is a difficult text. Uh, It's difficult on a number of levels. The first being, on the sexual morality front, what in the world are we supposed to be taking away from this passage? Uh, Are Ruth and Boaz, examples of godly behavior in chapter 3 that we should be imitating because this is some provocative stuff if i your pastor were to find out an unmarried couple at new city were having their own little version of the threshing floor incident going on oh boy look out another difficulty and this is the most technical part of the sermon concerns legal issues surrounding leveret marriage and the goel a goel is a hebrew term variously translated the guardian redeemer or redeemer or family guardian Uh, and leveret marriage is the mosaic command for an israelite to marry his dead brother's widowed wife his sister-in-law and in order to raise up offspring uh, in his brother's name those two matters have tremendous bearing on our understanding of the book of Ruth. And if you're approaching this text today as a blank slate, if you're a new Christian, perhaps, or a Christian who has never read the book of Ruth or has never heard a Sunday school lesson or sermon on this passage, you actually may, in fact, have an advantage over the other Christians here who have been weaned on this story uh, because there is a great deal of confusion in Christian circles about leveret marriage and the legal duties of the goel. And if that's something that we've misunderstood then frankly, a great deal of the storyline of the book of Ruth becomes incoherent. The final difficulty is this. How in the world does anything in chapter 3 point to Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Uh, How do we make a jump from the sexually charged atmosphere on the threshing floor to the gospel, what God's accomplished in Jesus' death resurrection for sin, and in consequence will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. How do we make that connection? Because I don't want to be reading, I don't want to be preaching the book of Ruth the way a Jewish rabbi preaches it, for example. I'm a Christian. Because here's the thing, as Christians, can we make a legitimate jump from this chapter to the New Testament? Should we even be trying? And if so, how? Because we don't want to think every single verse, incident, and offhand comment in the Old Testament has its direct fulfillment in some New Testament anti-type event, or institution. Not every Old Testament verse and word is a code whose decryption key is always found in Jesus Christ. If we're reading Scripture that way, then pretty soon we're making millions of connections, quote-unquote, that just aren't there. Our Bible reading becomes very subjective with no hermeneutical or interpretive controls, and we'll always be trying to get to Jesus through some artificial means, some means without New Testament warrant. And as you're preaching, Pastor, I need to be very careful that I don't get to Jesus or the Gospel in this passage through some artificial means. It'll it'll preach well, but it's just not there in the text. For instance, and I know I might be stepping on some toes here by saying this, but saying Ruth is the bride of her Redeemer, Boaz, just as the church is the bride of her Redeemer, Jesus. Beloved, the Bible nowhere makes that connection for us. I'm reluctant to go there. Just because Boaz is a kinsman redeemer and the New Testament describes Jesus' death in terms of redemption doesn't mean that we're free to draw all kinds of parallels now between the two. Besides, we learn in Ruth chapter 4 who the redeemer in this story actually is, explicitly, and it's not Boaz. It's not. My aims in this sermon are modest, right? More than anything else, I'm hoping to correct fuzzy thinking. All right? If if you leave today and you think my understanding of Ruth chapter 3 has been unfuzzied, then praise God. <laughs> praise God for that. There are There are some very, very tricky interpretive issues in this chapter that we need to be sorting out before we come to the final sermon next week in chapter four. I want chapter four of Ruth to be Jesus, 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 because that's what it is. So next Sunday, you'll see I'm I'm no Jewish rabbi, but this sermon, you may need to be patient. To use a volleyball illustration, chapter 3 is sort of the setup for chapter 4, where it's all about Jesus, and then I, by God's grace, I hope to spike the ball in chapter 4, but today it's the setup, all right? That's that's probably the second sports illustration I've ever used in my whole time as being a preacher. So, let's get down to it. Last week, we left off in chapter 2, verse 17. You'll recall that Ruth just happened to find herself working in the field of Boaz, a man of standing in the community, uh, a man from the same clan as her deceased husband and deceased father-in-law. Very important details. And because of Boaz's generosity, which he lavished upon Ruth because of her selfless love for Naomi, her mother-in-law, and her great faith in the God of Israel, she came home that evening with a pile of barley grain to share with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. So look at verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother in law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after having eaten enough. Now, it's difficult to say precisely how much an ephah is, but most commentators agree that Ruth has threshed roughly enough barley for the two women to eat for one week which is an impossible amount for one person to glean under regular conditions. Boaz has been extremely generous. And remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. In fact, if Ruth averages the same each day and works the entire seven weeks of the barley and wheat harvests, uh, she will have enough for Naomi and herself to eat for one year, if this pace continues. So, when Ruth comes home with her load of grain... Naomi is shocked. Look at verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord. Bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our... Goel. Okay, everything, everything depends upon this word. Which the NIV translates guardian redeemers. The TNIV is family guardians. The ESV reads uh, one of our redeemers. NASB, one of our closest relatives. The NLT, one of our family redeemers. Now you'll recall in chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, Naomi blessed both Ruth and Orpah in the name of Yahweh for their kindness Shown to her dead sons and to her. Even so, she was still able to spew bitter bile in every direction because the hand of the Lord had gone out against her. Naomi was so embittered towards God, so convinced of his lack of love and concern and care for her, so convinced that she was the anvil upon whom God was pounding his sovereign hammer, that she changed her name to Mara. Bitterness. She is now bitterness incarnate. And Bethlehem's a small town. And so Naomi now has a reputation as a bitter old woman. Now, some preachers and commentators see verse 20 as a turnaround in Naomi's attitude. Because now Naomi is able to thank God for his mercies. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter, he, that is God, has not sh- stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. But I believe Boaz, or Naomi is blessing Boaz for his kindness to the living and the dead, not God. Naomi is still very bitter against God. And the reason I say that is because Boaz does something quite deliberate for Naomi at the end of chapter three, which is still two months down the road. Boaz gives Naomi a gift of barley grain he, and he's giving it to Naomi. He does so after he has pledged to redeem her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And as we'll see when we get there, Boaz is teaching Naomi through that gift of barley that her life isn't empty, it's full. And that God is looking out for her through her family guardian. But that lesson is still two months away. And it's a lesson Boaz still needs to teach Naomi at that time because Naomi's heart is not changed here. But I'll explain it a bit more when we get to it. Uh, So now, as soon as Naomi hears that it's not just anybody, but Boaz, who has been showing Ruth kindness, there's a real surge in her spirit. The Lord bless him. Why is she so happy? Verse 20. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. He's a goel. Look at the footnote. If you have our church Bible, footnote A20 at the bottom of the page, this footnote is explaining for us what the NIV interpretively translates guardian redeemer. It reads thus, The Hebrew word for family guardian slash guardian redeemer is a legal term for one who has the obligation, the legal obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. Now, the term goel is the most important word in the whole book of Ruth. And I need to spend a disproportionate amount of time explaining this. And I'll be unpacking this at two different points along the sermon. Uh, Right now, I just want to present you with the duties, the duties of the, the law covenant of Moses, that the law covenant lays upon the goel. Those duties, the goel is legally obligated to perform. Remember, Israel, old covenant Israel is a theocracy. These are laws from God. And this is what God says in this law covenant of Moses. You can see them listed in your bulletin. You're going to probably want to refer to this quite a bit throughout the sermon. And remember, God gave the law covenant of Moses to Israel 400 years before the story of Ruth takes place. So number one, the first duty of the Goel. If a Jew living in the theocracy, that is Israel, was wronged and restitution was legally due, but the person wronged was dead... The Goel would receive the payment on the victim's behalf. Read about that in Numbers 5, 5 to 8. Second, the Goel was to avenge the killing of a clan relative. He was to act as a blood redeemer. Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. Third, the Goel's third duty was to redeem impoverished clan members who were forced to sell themselves into slavery to a non-Israelite. Leviticus 25 And then 47 to 55. The the goel was the one who was legally obligated to put up the cash to redeem them. Fourthly, the goel was legally responsible to purchase family property that, because of poverty, has been sold outside the family. Leviticus 25. And these four duties are the only duties laid out in the law of Moses for the Goel. That's it, just these four. You see, it is essential, it's essential to understanding the book of Ruth that there is no mention in the law of Moses of the Goel marrying his sister-in-law or some other near female relative and raising up children for her deceased husband. Now obviously the first three legal obligations of the Goel listed in our bulletin have nothing to do with the story, right? Nothing. And though the fourth obligation, the redemption of land, does figure prominently in the legal scene at the gate in chapter 4, next week's text, that Naomi had at this point in time as a viable legal option, the legal right to the redemption of land, to which she then would have the rights as the widow of the deceased owner, that makes perfect nonsense of the story. Think that through. All right. If Naomi had such rights, one of the few legal rights women in this culture possessed, it's inconceivable that neither she nor Boaz has made any move on the matter. And instead, Ruth has been forced to glean in the fields, which is the cultural equivalent of being on welfare or going to the food bank. There's no way, no way. Naomi is using the term family guardian or redeemer in a more general sense. It is in a non-legal sense. It has to be. The term had evidently broadened over the 400 years of spiritual apostasy the nation of Israel had endured. Now, now the term is being used in a non-legal, non-binding sense to include a relative who is only morally responsible. They have a moral obligation to deliver another family member from evil, be it poverty or injustice or oppression or slavery. And I would argue that is the way Naomi is using the term in chapter two, verse 20. Folks, this is foundational to my exegesis moving forward, right? This is why my sermons on the book of Ruth might sound different from another pastor you hear. It's because of this. Uh, Naomi is not thinking, (gasps) oh, Of course, Boaz, I forgot about that guy. I I totally forgot about Boaz. Now Ruth, now we have recourse to the law in this patriarchal society. Boaz must legally undertake it for, I can't believe I forgot about him. He must marry you legally. He's the Boaz, he must provide for you. He must raise up children for your deceased husband and he must buy back family property, right? Your ship has come in, there's no way. Otherwise, this story would be over in chapter one, right? We, we have to see that moving ahead. Do you, I hope you see why I'm stressing this. There are principles in storytelling that must be followed if a narrative like Ruth is to function effectively as a story. A narrative must be coherent. It must be intelligible. The reader must be able to follow what's happening and understand how a given incident relates to what precedes it. There must be no discontinuities that render the story incomprehensible. And the narrator of a story must supply sufficient information so that the readers know what's happening and why, right? Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all of my grain. Now Naomi responds. Naomi said to to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Why? Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. And if I had symbols up here, I'd be clashing them like crazy right now. Notice that all Naomi is saying is that because Boaz is the Goel, he'll make sure Ruth doesn't come to any harm as she gleans his fields. That's it. She'll be safe. Naomi here isn't really reaching for the stars, is she? It's not very romantic. (laughs) There's no ecstasy of, Ruth, your ship has come in at last. And that's the condition Ruth and Naomi stay in for the next two months. Verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz, the glean, until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. It's about seven weeks altogether. And she lived with her mother-in-law. But then... Naomi sends Ruth to the, fles- to the threshing floor. So, with all that in the background, let's move ahead now into chapter 3. Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz on the threshing floor, verses 1 to 18. And this, let me remind you now at the outset of this, the Bible doesn't always prescribe or command behavior. Sometimes it just describes it. That's a very, very important distinction to bear in mind. Here's what so-and-so did. Here's, what, here's what's happening. <laughs> you know, it's just the facts. It doesn't make a moral pronouncement about the goings-on, okay? So, chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well-provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, you'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfu- perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Now, in one way, this is a very touching family scene. Uh, Naomi loves Ruth, and she wants to ensure that Ruth is well provided for after Naomi dies. Uh, Naomi Naomi wants to win a husband for Ruth, so she concocts a plan. Remember, Naomi is the Jewish mother-in-law. She knows the culture. She knows the customs of the land far better than Ruth the Moabite does. So first things first. Naomi tells Ruth to remove the symbols and garments of her widowhood. Most commentators interpret verse three as Naomi bringing Ruth's period of mourning for Malon, her deceased husband and Naomi's son to the end to an end. The, the mourning period is over. When people from this time and culture mourned, they went about unkempt. Uh, they wouldn't wash as a sign of grief. Uh, they dress in sackcloth and throw. Uh, ash and dust on their heads. Uh, they, they're telling the world, I'm so upset, I can't even be bothered with my appearance. Right? My, my loss was not a common loss. Even today, a Jewish mourner doesn't shave or take a haircut for 30 days. So by bathing, putting on perfume, and changing out of her mourning garb into her best clothes, Ruth is sending a message. Right? Look out, fellas. <laughs> she's, she's back. She's back in the game. Verse 3b. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the plates where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Okay. Naomi has instructed her daughter-in-law to wait until evening after Boaz has had a few drinks, sneak up to where he is sleeping, lift his garment. It's not his blanket. It's his garment. Thus exposing to an ambiguous extent his lower extremities. The Hebrew isn't clear and lie down with him. Then she adds, he will tell you what to do. Yeah, right. Now, one thing is clear in all this, and one thing is not clear. It's clear that this is Naomi's way of trying to get Boaz to marry Ruth. What's not clear is why she should go about doing it like this. What's wrong with a simple conversation, right? Naomi's whole plan hinges on Boaz being sexually attracted to Ruth. It doesn't make it right, but apparently this was a non-verbal, customary means of requesting marriage in this culture. But just because it's cultural doesn't make it right. And as we read in Judges 19, this is also a culture where men don't think twice about gang rape. Right? This, is, this is a dark, dark, dark period in Israel's history. And Naomi's plan is risky and it's stupid. Plenty could go wrong here. Boaz could mock Ruth. You social climbing gold digger. You're a destitute barren Moabite. I'm a Hebrew man of standing. Who are you kidding? I'm way out of your league. Or he could just use Ruth for his sexual pleasure or charge her with prostitution. Uh, We read in other scripture that prostitutes would come to the threshing floor. It was one of their main haunts because lots of men uh, were there who had been drinking. Why in the world would Naomi devise such a means of proposing marriage between Boaz and Ruth? We can only surmise one thing may be that Boaz is old enough that he feels Ruth wouldn't be interested. Uh, He says as much in chapter 3 verse 10. Plus he's always calling her my daughter, my daughter. Uh, So this looks like a May, December type thing. Uh, Also up to this point, Ruth has been dressed in the symbols of mourning, right? Which would stop Boaz from making inappropriate advances. But the clock is ticking. The barley and wheat harvests are now complete and Ruth needs to get a husband. So Naomi takes the bull by the horns and concocts this risky, stupid plan. Naomi clearly hopes that the prospect of marriage to the young and obviously sexually attractive Ruth will provide the motivation needed to prompt Boaz to act. So verse six, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. All right. This whole scene is is laden with sexual overtones. Feet in the Hebrew is a word that's intentionally ambiguous. It's it's uncertain how much of Boaz's lower body is uncovered. Feet is often used as a euphemism in scripture for the sexual organs. Uh, But it depends on the context. It depends on the morality of the characters. Likewise, the word uncover is often used in Hebrew scripture in the sense of to uncover somebody's nakedness, which means to have sex with them. As well, to lie down can mean to lie down with someone to have sex with them or just or just to sleep. You see, the sexual extent of all of these ambiguous phrases depends on the context and the morality of the characters. But it's Inconceivable that a Hebrew storyteller would employ all of these ambiguous terms in the same context and not suggest that there is a sexually provocative set of circumstances transpiring on the threshing room floor. Let's put it this way if Ruth were a prostitute and Boaz not a man of standing, then there would be no doubt. Sexual immorality is taking place at the far end of the grain pile. Verse eight, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a goel, redeemer, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. All right, let's slow everything down to a crawl. Uh, and, I, and I beg your patience, with this next part of the sermon. Uh, For the next seven minutes or so, I'm really going to pour it on, all right? This is tricky, but if we don't take the bother to understand Boaz's responsibility as a guardian redeemer, then we simply will not have understood what God wants us to understand from this jewel of Old Testament scripture. The whole issue of what is a family guardian or a redeemer and what his legal duties in the society are This constitutes the most difficult interpretive issue in the book of Ruth. It all comes down to this word, all right? So let me just show you how difficult it is, all right? Just take a slug of coffee. I need your brains working at 100% here, okay? First, notice that Ruth bases her requests for marriage on the fact that Boaz is a Goel. As the ESV translates it, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer, goel. And that's what Naomi called Boaz back in chapter two, verse 20. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, remember, all right? And chapter four introduces us to the responsibility of the goel to recover or retain family property, which is biblical. It's number four in our outline. But... There's also the apparent implication in chapter four that marriage goes hand in hand as a legal duty of the goel. But that's nowhere found in scripture. That's not listed in your four points, is it? Marriage. So this raises questions as to how the marriage of Ruth and Boaz in chapter four is related to the so-called leveret marriage described in Deuteronomy 25, five to 10. Leveret marriage. Lever means brother-in-law in in Hebrew. I want you to turn, if you would, uh, to page 112. This is Deuteronomy 25. We're going to look at verses 5 to 10. Here's what I found. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, page 112 in your church Bibles. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town at the gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off uh, one of his sandals, and spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, many people would say, even though Boaz was not Ruth's brother-in-law, their marriage in chapter 4 is a leveret marriage. Why do people say that? Because Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 and verses 10, specifies that the purpose of their marriage is to raise up children. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Then verse 10. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And many would say, that sounds like leveret marriage to me. It's also argued in chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth bases her request that Boaz accept her leveret marriage responsibility, his leveret marriage responsibility, on the fact that he is the goel. You're the redeemer, you've got to do this. So it's argued by some that Ruth is telling Boaz on the threshing floor, Boaz you legally, legally, you must marry me in a Leveret marriage because you are the Goel. But that would be very strange for two reasons. The passages in the Old Testament dealing with the Goel's duties never touch upon the Leveret obligation. That's nowhere in your list of four in your handout. two, nor did the passages dealing with levirate marriage ever call the man responsible for this responsibility, this obligation, a goel. So what in the world is going on in chapter four? And what in the world is going on here in chapter three? And there's something else just to add to the fun. I warned you, this is very tricky. In chapter four, land that belongs to Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, suddenly materializes out of the clear blue sky. It's never been part of the story before up to this point. It's the first time we've heard of it. And Boaz calls, up, Boaz calls upon the family guardian, more closely related than he, to act upon his rights and duties as a family guardian and buy back the land. And the standard interpretation argues that Boaz uses the implications of the Goels' double responsibilities of levirate marriage to Ruth and the redemption of Amalek's land to induce the unnamed family guardian who has Prior rights to cede these responsibilities and these rights to Boaz. Boaz then redeems the land and he marries Ruth, both actions being his legal duties as the Goel. It's argued that the unnamed near relative had the same legal duties, but he shirked them. Alright, if your head isn't on the verge of exploding with all that information, let's go back to the threshing room floor. In chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth has just based her request that Boaz marry her on his role as the Goel. The situation presumed in the text that the narrator has set up for us is as follows. Naomi's instructions to Ruth in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, have as their sole expressed purpose the provision of a home and a husband for Ruth, right? That's it. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours tonight. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. That's it. There's not one word anywhere that she just said there in Naomi's instructions and, and really and in her intentions that what she really has in mind is providing an heir for Elimelech and Malon. It does. She's never said that. Also, Naomi logically concludes. In chapter 3, verse 2, that Boaz may be the means to procure Ruth a home and husband on the basis that he is a relative. But she's known about his relationship to them and his being their family guardian for two months now and nothing's happened. This means neither Naomi nor Ruth could possibly have in mind now, at this point in the story, and any more than two months ago when they were subsisting on the Israelite equivalent of welfare, a legal obligation on Boaz's part, or the nearer relatives' part, we meet in chapter 4, to redeem land sold by Elimelech to which they would then have some legal right as widows. That makes zero sense of the story. But it's kind of how I think a lot of Christians understand the story. But it makes no sense. Ruth's been slaving away in the fields for two months. But all the while, these ladies have been sitting on valuable Judean real estate that some man and their family is legally obligated to redeem for them. That's crazy. It makes nonsense of the story. It's the same thing with Ruth's sexually provocative marriage proposal. Why would Naomi have sent Ruth down to the threshing floor in this risky excursion if she already has a legally bound husband for her just waiting in the wings? Right? If such a legal obligation did exist on Boaz's part or the nearer relative's part, it makes the plot incoherent. Beloved, what all this means, why I'm laboring away at this, is both Ruth and Naomi cannot... Be using the term family guardian, redeemer, goel, in a legally binding sense. It can't be that. And that is the interpretive key to everything, the whole book. Both Boaz and the unnamed closer relative in chapter 4 have only a moral obligation to look after these women, not a legal one. Otherwise, the story doesn't make sense. Ruth is telling Boaz in verse 9, spread the corner of your garment over me. That means marry me, since you are a family guardian. Which means you're the one who has the moral responsibility to care for family members in need. Now, we've heard this expression, spread the corner of your garment over me before, Though if we can't read Hebrew, or if we're not reading the ESV, we won't pick up on it. It's the same phrase Boaz used last week in chapter 2, verse 12, that I told you to kind of file away in your memory banks. That was when Boaz was so impressed with Ruth's devotion to Naomi that he told her, May Yahweh, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to take refuge. Corner plays on wings of the Lord in Boaz's earlier remark in 12.2 about Ruth finding refuge. Both are forms of the same Hebrew word. I, I really like Ruth's boldness here. When Ruth is asking Boaz to spread the corner of his garment or his wings over her, She is essentially asking Boaz to answer his own prayer from chapter 2, verse 12. She's telling him, really, to put his money where his mouth is. Uh, Was your prayer there, back in chapter 2, just an empty social gesture, Boaz? Because here's a way you can answer your own prayer. And clearly, Boaz understands Ruth's actions and words to mean something other than, Let's have sex. And instead of cursing her and shooing her off as some immoral prostitute, he blesses her. Frederick Bush writes, she who came to find shelter under Yahweh's wing will find her full reward from Yahweh when the man who himself voiced such a blessing spreads his wing over her in marriage. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Boaz's response in verse 10 is very interesting. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. You got to ask, is, is Boaz speaking hyperbolically there? I mean, is he exaggerating his gratefulness? It sounds over the top. He's telling Ruth that her marriage proposal is more gracious, it's more kind, than her previous action toward her mother-in-law in pulling up stakes, leaving her family, and leaving Judah. Man, I mean, that's, that's pretty self-deprecating. I mean, Does Boaz look like the elephant man or something? He's <laughs> like, thank you for having pretty on me. Um, has Boaz understood her request to encompass more than marriage? If so, in what other way Could he have understood her words? So far, the story hasn't given us a clue. There's only a sense that Boaz's response here somehow doesn't fit. Or does it? I will do for you all you ask. Surely he simply means marriage. Or does he? Also, it's important we notice that Boaz says Ruth could have sought marriage with any man of the town. Verse 10. Which again shows us she is under no legal obligation to become the wife of Malon's closest relative in order to raise up an heir to her dead husband. See, once you see it, it's so simple, it's so consistent the whole way through. She could have married anybody. As well, notice how often Boaz speaks of a redeemer and redeeming Ruth. Um, If you have, let me just read to you the ESV translation. And now it is, this is verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Naomi and Ruth have requested of Boaz only marriage. The word goel, redeemer has so far been used in the general sense of a moral obligation of a man to come to the aid of family members in need. But then Boaz could have said in verse 13, if he will not marry you, I will do so. Instead, he says, if he will not redeem you, I will redeem you. Does Boaz mean something other than marriage by talking about redemption so much in these verses? If so... What can he be referring to? In what other way does Ruth stand in need of redemption than the removal of the destitution and social stigma of widowhood? The story so far hasn't given us the slightest clue. So, Boaz simply must mean marriage. Or does he mean more than that? Verse 14 So she lay at his feet until morning but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Not a good move on Boaz's part. He should have walked her home. Uh, men, if a woman should ever try to pull a roof and surprise you in the middle of the night by jumping in bed with you and proposing marriage, please avoid even the appearance of evil and take the time to walk her home, or better yet, call an Uber and wait for it with her outside on the sidewalk under a bright, bright street lamp. All right, verse fifteen. He said, "Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out." When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. He isn't going to delay one minute in fulfilling his obligation to, to Ruth, his commitment to her. But what exactly that is exactly, we're we're not entirely sure at this point. Uh, verse sixteen. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, "How did it go, my daughter?" Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. See, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. Then Naomi said, wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And notice it's here our narrator chooses to give the reason for Boaz's gift of grain, not when he actually gave Ruth the gift of barley on the threshing room floor. That's very important. Verse 17 can be translated because you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. What was Naomi's plan at the beginning of the chapter? Her plan was to get Ruth married, to resolve Ruth's destitution, the disgrace of Ruth's widowhood. That's all Ruth requested on the threshing floor. Naomi herself never came into the picture. Naomi was never mentioned Right? And when Boaz promised that either he or a near relative would act in the morning, from all we could tell, it was related specifically to the redeeming of Ruth. But what about Naomi? How will the death and the emptiness she's experienced, the major problem posed in chapter one? How will that be transformed into life and fullness? Or does it have to necessarily work out that way? I think the way our narrator has Ruth quote Boaz's very words in which he insists that Ruth not return empty to her mother-in-law, it signals that the gift of grain Boaz sent to Naomi is a portent, is a foreshadowing, is a symbolic gift that the resolution he has promised Ruth will also encompass Naomi's return to life and fullness. That word empty is the same word that Naomi used at the end of chapter 1, verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This gift of barley is a pledge on Boaz's part that Naomi's days of emptiness are over. Boaz is going to do something about Naomi's emptiness. So come back next week and find out what. Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. The man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Amen.